Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, and honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This is the word of God. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, passages throughout Scripture that walk through uh, and teach us a little bit more about what we learned as children. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9. Jesus had just left the mountain and he was transfigured. And he was about to enter Jerusalem to head up a different mountain, which is Calvary. And so sandwiched between the transfiguration and Calvary, you have pivotal teachings. Jesus teaching us about marriage and about children and about wealth. These are three of the most pivotal things, pivotal areas in anyone's life. And this passage teaches us about our relationship with money, our wealth. Now, I've got to keep in mind that Jesus Christ is not in front of skeptics here when he's teaching. He's in front of his disciples and so this is a lesson for the church. And he's saying this, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to know at least three things about our wealth, about money. One, the power of money. Two, why does it have such a power in our lives? And three, how can you be free from this gift, from this, from this grip of wealth? One, the power. Two, uh, why it has such power, and lastly, how can we be free from that power? First, we're going to go into the power, the first point, the power of money. Wealth has an intoxicating power on our souls. It has a way of shaping our values. It has a way of shaping our beliefs. It becomes our treasure. And so your net worth can easily become the measure of your self-worth. That's what this passage is saying. Verse 17, you have a man, and he's obedient. He's a good man. And he comes uh, to Jesus. He wants to serve God. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, tells the same uh, story, the same narrative, says he's a young man. Luke's gospel says he's a ruler. He's a young king. And so in verse 22, we realize he's wealthy. So he's a rich, young ruler. And he approaches Jesus, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, good teacher. And Jesus responds in verse 18, why do you call me good? This is a ruler. This is a king. And yet even this man calls Jesus good. Good meaning what? 
righteous. He says, you are righteous. You are worthy. You are acceptable. Clearly, this man knows that Jesus is wise. And so if Jesus approves of him, then I'm okay. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I can learn from you. You can supplement my life. You can improve my life. I can use you to grow my life, to help me. But then later on, what do you see? He walks away. What does this tell you? A couple things. One, he tells you that Jesus is more than just your teacher. Why? A teacher merely helps you improve your life, supplements your life. If you have a gift, a teacher is going to help to increase that gift in your life. But rarely do you ever have a relationship with your teacher. Why? Because in a relationship, a real relationship, what happens? There's arguing. You're butting heads. There's conflict. There's, there's struggle. Jesus came to be more than your teacher. He came to have a relationship. Secondly, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, he tells us things The Bible says many things that we don't like to hear, many things that we don't want to hear about ourselves, many things we don't want to hear about the brokenness of the world, how to be redeemed from it. And so only a real God can actually do that, can actually challenge you, conflict with you, argue with you. A God that you make up, a God that's a product of the sum of your desires, will never be able to challenge you, will never be able to assure you, will never be able to give you real validation. And so that's the only type of God, a God that argues with you, struggles with you, conflicts with you. That's the only type of God. It's the only type of Savior that can actually teach you, or more than teach you, shape you and change you and validate you because he's a good teacher, because he is worthy, because he is righteous. Only a Jesus that is truly good can actually shape you and validate you. But... He's going to disturb you. He's going to argue with you. He's going to make you feel uncomfortable at times. He's going to judge you at times. He's going to disagree with you at times. He's going to anger you at times. And he's doing that because why? He's developing a relationship with you. There isn't a single person in this room who hasn't gotten closer to someone through or in the context of arguments. In fact, in many ways, you kind of have to cross that bridge. You kind of have to have conflicts because there you touch on your values, your core desires, your core beliefs. And so he's doing that to develop a relationship with us, and that's why he's challenging us, and that's why he's shaping us, and that's why he's arguing with us. You have to let the Bible argue with you. You have to let the Bible challenge you. Otherwise, you know what you're doing? You're coming to Jesus. You're coming before the king of the universe. You're coming before the high king. You're coming before the Lord of lords. And you're saying, you're coming for true power. And you're saying, can I have some power? I want to know how to get power. You're coming for true wisdom. And you're saying, I want to know how to get more wisdom. You see that? In other words, your grace isn't enough. The man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds and he says, obey the commandments. And the man says what? But I did all these things. Then Jesus says, I want you to go. And I want you to sell everything you've got. And I want you to give it up to the poor. And then I want you to follow me. And this rich man ultimately could not do that. Why? Verse 22, because he had great wealth. In other words, losing his wealth, that was his greatest nightmare. Verse 22 says, the man walked away sad. He was grieving over this loss. 
He walked away sad. That Greek word for grieving, that Greek word for sad, it's a word that means ultimate troubling. He was troubled to the core. He was overwhelmed with grief. He was distressed. He felt like a loser just at the thought of losing his wealth. It was his biggest nightmare. What about you? What's your biggest nightmare? Because the Bible says if you hold wealth, if you hold on to your wealth to such a high value to the point where it starts to shape you, shape your values and your confidence, you're confident because you have wealth. It shapes your identity. It becomes your identity. You feel like a loser if you don't have wealth. That means that you are now a slave to your money. You are a slave to your wealth. Just the mere thought, the mere idea of losing wealth makes you sad. It grieves you. It makes you feel bankrupt. This man, he comes to Jesus. Notice, Jesus doesn't just give him another set of guidelines because that's what the man wants because he just wants an improvement in his life. He just wants supplement in his life. He feels like that's the way to get eternal life. Jesus doesn't give him another set of guidelines, another set of rules. He doesn't challenge his virtues or his values. He doesn't say, well, actually, you haven't lived this way. Here's how you got to live. What he says is this. And that's what he's saying to us today. He says, I want you to imagine your life without your money. Get rid of your IRAs, your annuities, your 401ks. Get rid of all of your securities and your investments so that all that you have left is me. I want you to go and give it all up. Sell it all away. Give it all away. And then what I want you to do is follow me. And this man, he couldn't. This good man, he couldn't. He walked away sad. And this is the warning. Money has such a power over our lives. It defines us. It becomes our measure of worth. The only reason why we study so hard, the only reason why we work so hard, it becomes our treasure. You know what a treasure is? A treasure is something that you'd be willing to give up your life for, right? You die for the things that you treasure. So it's something you can't live without. And because of that, without wealth, you don't know who you are. There's a deep sense of insecurity that sets in when you're not wealthy. If you want to know the reason why, you've got to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to the first book of the Bible. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis, what did man have? Man had identity. Man had security. But when man chose to increase his options and his potential and his freedom on his own, he lost himself. He lost his identity. He lost his security. He looked elsewhere to increase his options and potential and freedom, and, and as a result, it decreased his options and potential and freedom. And so ever since then, we've been trying to get back into the garden on our own. God placed actually a flaming sword in front of the garden and kicked man out. And ever since then, we've been dying to get back in, literally. And, but the thing is, we can't. It's a myth. We can't get back into the garden. Why? Because we have to go through the sword. And so ever since then, we've been trying to get back in on our own, and that's the power of money. Jesus warns us that wealth intoxicates us to believe that that's the way back in, that we can arrive with our wealth. If you have wealth, then I'm okay. Yes, it's going to buy us comfort. Yes, it's going to give us, Malcolm Muggeridge says, it gives us trendy diversions. It gives us services. But even deeper, it gives us the semblance that we have control when you have wealth, that you have security, deep security, 
that you, have deep, you can have deep relationships in an unsafe world, in a broken world. It intoxicates us to shape our judgment, distort our view of reality, distort our view of ourselves, and we judge other people by what? Their ability to make money. It distorts our view of our own gifts and abilities. It blinds our view to what we really have and who we really are. And so when we have wealth, we feel good. It increases our sense of worth. It builds us up. It gives us a confidence. Now, then why, if this man had all that, why did he go to Jesus? Because he's thinking, I need to make sure. I have all these things. And on top of that, he's obedient. I need to make sure that I did all of this right on my own. Deep inside, he's not sure. He's, uns- he's unsure. He's doubting. He's looking for approval. He never truly knew where he stood with God. Because all earthly forms of validation never give us the validation that we really need, that we lost in the garden, that we're trying to get back. And so that's what we need. That's what we seek. That's why we're insecure. Deep inside, we're looking for an ultimate validation, someone outside of ourselves. You know, it's never enough to truly validate yourself. A lot of us in our room say, well, you know what? I don't care what other people say about me. But we know that's a lie. Because the very basis of being a writer or an author or a preacher or anything in the world, in any profession, you need validation outside of yourself to tell you how well you're doing, to tell you that you're okay or not okay. Every one of us in the room are doing that. We're all looking for validation, and we need it. And so every one of us, whether it's about your looks or your talents or your abilities, we're looking, we need somebody outside of ourselves to validate us, to say that we've made it. Our own self-validation is not enough. Now think about this. We work to build our reputations. We work to build our reputations. And just this one person makes a comment about you, and what does it do? It sits with you all day. You fall apart. We're very fragile, pitiful people, aren't we? That's how we are. It's because we're so desperate for validation. And we think that money and our virtues, that's the sum of, that's all that we need to get it. Our sin, ever since the garden has created a God-sized hole, an emptiness in our hearts, that's the insecurity. That's the deep sense of, of, of a need for validation. Our sin has created this God-sized hole, a hole in emptiness that only God can fill. Nothing but God can fill it. The Bible says ever since the Garden of Eden, we've believed in a lie that our wealth can fill it, that our power can fill it, can fill this deep in- emptiness in our hearts. It's created by sin. And so we use wealth as a way of convincing ourselves that we can get back in, that we're okay. And so we work and we work, and we labor, and we constantly are trying to prove ourselves, to fill this hole, to get this validation. Because if we're validated, if I have it, that's the sum of our relationships, our buying power. That's the sum of our worth. We're okay. Jesus then says in verse 21, what what does he say? There's one thing you lack. And he says, I want you to go, sell everything, Give it up to the poor. What he's asking him to do, he says, I want you to be my disciple. Follow me. And the man couldn't. Jesus says, I am the source of validation that you need. I am the source of validation that you're looking for. Follow me. You lack real assurance. You lack validation. You look and you act. And everything that you do, you're doing not out of confidence, 
but out of insecurity. That's what you lack. You lack security. I want, I am the source of that security. Follow me. But he couldn't. Why? He grieved because of his wealth. The power of wealth is too great in his lives, in our lives. And it may have a power and a grip over us, defining us, distorting us, distorting our view of ourselves and our identity. That's the power. Now, secondly, why does it have this power? Why does it have this power? And we come to this part of the text. It's a very famous line, and yet nobody really understands what it means. Right? We come to this part where Jesus teaches us this very controversial teaching. He says in verse 23, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, he kind of reiterates himself. Verse 24, he says, it's, easy for a, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's clear that Jesus is questioning whether or not this man had eternal life. Absolutely clear. But notice, the disciples, they were poor. The disciples had nothing. They're poor. They didn't respond by saying, yes, that makes so much sense. You know, because this guy, he's so annoying. He's so obnoxious. I can't stand people like him. I don't like that. I didn't like the guy in the first place. After all, I know I have eternal life because I'm poor. He doesn't say that. That's not what, he sa- that's not what they say. Why not? And it's because this man, you know, the disciples never scoff at him. This man is not a typical rich person. He's not just a typical king. He's not just a typical young man who wants to obey. It was mentioned this in this previously, but the other, the, the other gospels call him a rich young ruler. But he's not just rich. The man asks Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus responds. He says, I want you to obey the commandments. And these commandments that he highlights, they're particular commandments that have to do with our relationships with other people. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't defraud. Honor your parents. In other words, Jesus is asking, do you defraud others? Have you ever exploited other people for your own personal gain? Have you ever lied so you can gain something personally? And the man's basically saying, no, I've kept all these commandments. In other words, I've always treated people with kindness and compassion and respect So when Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, notice the disciples, they're amazed. Clearly he's not saying that just by the the token of being rich, it prevents you from entering the kingdom. The disciples, they're surprised by what Jesus is saying. Later it says they're even more amazed. And you want to know why? It's not because this man, it's not because this man had wealth. And it's not because this man wasn't good enough. The man was too good. The man was so good. This man made wealth. He made his earning through discipline and hard work and by being a good citizen. He must have had a terrific reputation. He must have had incredible character because no one scoffed when Jesus said how hard it is for this man, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of, of, of God. No one scoffed at that man. When this man said, I've kept all the commandments, no one rolled their eyes, no one scoffed at him. He gave his response. You would think that Jesus, who knows every person's heart, Jesus himself, you would think, would roll his eyes at that man because he knew his heart, and yet he doesn't. You would think that the disciples would have rolled their eyes, but they don't. Instead, in verse 26, what they're really saying is this. If this man can't get in to the kingdom of God, then who can? 
The rich man, this young ruler, had so much virtue. He had so much integrity. He, had an, he was an outstanding citizen. He was such a good person that it made the disciples doubt themselves. So it wasn't the sheer fact that he had wealth. Jesus is not saying that the simple fact of having lots of money is what condemns you. Clearly not. It's what that money does to you. It's that power. It's why uh, that power courses through us and has a grip on our souls. Jesus is saying, because of the power of wealth, how difficult it is. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, they all agree, all the commentators, they struggle to understand what Jesus is saying when he's talking about how, easy, how it's easy for a camel to enter, to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the, the kingdom of God. All the commentators disagree on what that passage means. They're all trying to figure it out. Some people focus on the camel. Some people focus on the thread. Some people focus on the needle. Some people focus on just the whole of the statement. Everybody disagrees on what that passage means. But the one thing that they don't disagree on, the one thing that every commentator agrees on, is that Jesus is using a metaphor, a very simple metaphor, to say that it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because money has too much of a grip on our hearts. That rich young ruler could not imagine life without his money. It was his treasure. He died to earn that treasure. I mean, you can't imagine how hard he must have worked at that young age to earn what he earned. It defined him. And so the author poetically has a way of showing us that this man came in, that first verse that we read, he came on his knees and he walked away on his own two feet, you see. Wealth was a source of his strength. It strengthened him. So when he ran away from Christ and walked towards his wealth, he walked on his own. It was a source of his strength and his power and his reputation and his status and his security. And Jesus is basically saying, if you are doing that, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God unless, verse 27, unless God himself intervenes. He says, nothing is impossible with God. In other words, money is such an incredible grip on our lives. It would take God himself to intervene, and that's what it takes. How does that happen? How do you become free from the grip of wealth in our lives? It's an amazing lesson. I mean, the disciples, they are astounded. They are amazed. But Jesus Christ didn't just come to teach. He didn't come to become a teacher or a moral example or a religious leader. He came to be our substitute. And so this rich man came to Jesus confident in his earthly wealth, confident in his status. He lived up to the law. He lived up to the law to make his wealth, and it made him confident. What does it take then to enter the kingdom? Jesus says, obey the commandments. He says, I did. Is that what it takes? How did Jesus respond? Did he roll his eyes? Did he scoff at the man? Did he point out his true sins, the deep sins of his heart? No. Look at the patience of Jesus. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. He doesn't even reject the man. He doesn't turn him away. Verse 21, it actually says, the author says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at the kindness of Jesus. Why was he so compassionate? Why did he look at him and love him? 
countless times to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, Jesus is harsh. Jesus is yelling and rebuking. He curses them. But here, with this rich young ruler who's living off of his pride, he looks at him with compassion. Why? And it's because he understands. He understands what it means to be a rich, young ruler. What it takes to give everything up. If there's anybody who would understand what it takes to give everything up, it's Jesus. Jesus tells the man, I want you to go. I want you to sell everything you have. Give it up. I want you to give it away to the poor. And I want you to follow me. In other words, here's how you get eternal life. I want you to empty yourself. And I want you to give it to people who don't deserve it. And then you have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. How do you get over the power of wealth in your life? Because there it is. Jesus is telling us. He says, I want you to surrender everything and follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, friends. Being a Christian is very simple and yet so profound. Because all it is, it's not so much how much you give. It's what you're giving up. Are you giving up your identity? To give up all that you are. And Jesus understands how much it hurts because he also is rich. He also is young. He was actually in his prime. He also is a king. And so if anybody understands what it's like to give everything up, to give it to a group of people who do not deserve it, who are running from him, who are despising him, Jesus knows what it's like to give everything up. Because Jesus gave up all of his honor, all of his glory, all of his wealth, all of his inheritance. He had it all, and yet he left it all. He left his father's throne above. So free, so infinite, his grace. He had it all. He left it all. He gave it up. And yet Philippians chapter 2 says, even though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The rich man says, I want to grasp it. I want it. How do I get it? Tell me what to do. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus instead made himself nothing. He gave it all up. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He emptied himself of his glory, and then he went all the way to the cross. You want to know what that means? In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's before he was arrested. And what is he doing? He's on his knees, coming before the king. And he's grieving. It says he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he says. That word sorrow is the same Greek word that's used to describe that rich young ruler's sorrow when he walked away from Jesus, that sadness when he walked away. So when Jesus is looking at the rich young ruler, he understands the pain because he experienced it. He understands the sadness because he experienced it. He understands the difficulty of surrender because he experienced it. He gave it all up. He understands. There's the compassion. If there's anybody who understands the sorrow and the grief of loss, it's Jesus. Jesus is far richer. He's far more virtuous. You want to talk about obedience, the obedience of the king, that rich young ruler, he was obedient. Jesus was obedient all the way to the cross. 
So he understands the pain, and he understands the sadness, and he understands the difficulty of surrender. Only a man could, who could ever dare say that I lived up to every law, that's Jesus. Every commandment, that's Jesus. And he was still young in his prime, that's Jesus. And he was the king of the universe, that's Jesus. And his kingdom was far more vast, far greater. But in Gethsemane, he's suffering. And he says, I'm experiencing death right here. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And that means that Jesus Christ died two deaths on the cross. First at Gethsemane, and then secondly at the cross. Because he knows that I must surrender. God is asking him to go and empty himself and give everything up to people who don't deserve it and follow all the way to the cross, to obey all the way to the cross. And he did. He didn't walk away sad. In fact, if anything, do you know he walked away glad? He walked away glad. The rich man, he walked away. But that points to the greatest rich young ruler who did not walk away from God's call, who did not walk away from his center of worth. That was his mission. And he journeyed all the way to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus didn't just give up his worldly wealth. Jesus didn't just give up his status. On the cross, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was saying was, I've given up my treasure I've given up my relationship with my father. I've given up my God, the sum of my wealth, the sum of my security, my status, my glory. The cross was the place of ultimate surrender. This ultimate nightmare of being separated from his treasure, the gospel, the cross. And yet, you know, the rich man, he grieved at the thought, just at the idea of losing his greatest treasure. Jesus Christ grieved at the certainty of it. And yet he still obeyed. He obeyed and he did it for us, for you, for me. He gave up his security. Why? So that we could have his security. He gave up the love of the Father. Why? So that we could have the love of the Father. He gave up access to the Father, his treasure. Why? So that we could have true access, true relationship with the Father. Jesus Christ lost his treasure, lost his status, lost his honor, lost his glory. Why? So that we could have his treasure. We could have his status. We could have his honor. We could have the relationship. Why? Why did he do that? You would only give up one treasure if there was a greater treasure to behold. What was that treasure? The Apostle Paul in Philippians says, You are my joy and my crown. We are his treasure. We were the treasure worth dying for. We say a treasure is something that you you would die for. Jesus says, I did die for my treasure. You are my treasure. He went all the way. And do you know he did it gladly? Hebrews chapter 13 says it was for the joy that was set before him. What was his joy? You were his joy. That's why he did it. And when you behold the true rich young ruler who gave up his greatest treasure to make you his treasure and that made him glad to do it, then and only then will Jesus become your treasure. It will lessen the need. It will lessen the need to make wealth your treasure, to make wealth the measure of your life. It's going to change how you look at other people, how you judge other people, 
It's going to change how you view yourself and your confidence and where your security rests. It's going to change how you view potential dating partners in your life. Most of the time, you're going to ask, what does he do? What does she do? What do they look like? You're looking at the things that were built on wealth, and yet you would want somebody, you would want somebody in your life that would understand what it means to be free and not gripped by worldly pursuits, to have deep security, a deeper confidence, a deeper identity, someone who rests much more secure than that. You would want that in a way that they would live a much more integrity, a life of integrity a life of greater confidence. You would want that in your life. You see that? You have to become that. How do you become that? You have to go and you have to surrender to Jesus because, and you'll never know what you have when you surrender all until you surrender everything that you are until you first gaze on he who surrendered everything for you. Then you know your validation. You want to know the sum of your worth? Look at the cross because then, there you know everything that you have in Christ. Do you trust it? Will you rest on it? Do you believe it? Then wealth won't define you any longer. It's going to change how you view money. It's going to change how you view money. Money is a blessing. Absolutely but you won't live for it. Why? Because Jesus died for you. And he will become your treasure. It's going to open up tremendous opportunities to give. Do you know that the 21st century is going to be an incredible century, this century that we live in? Because there are more missionaries from other countries coming into the United States than there are missionaries being sent out. Do you know that? The rest of the world who had very little, a lot less than the United States, they look at this country as a poor country spiritually. So they are sending more missionaries into this country than we are sending out. And it's hitting the rich. It's hitting the wealthy. And in this place, why do we plant a church in the city? Because if the wealthy can be gripped by the gospel, it will give radical opportunities to give in a way that we had never given in this city before. That's why we're doing it. It's our mission. That's why we're doing it. It will give you tremendous opportunities to give radically because of the grace of God that has transformed and radically shaped you because of the radical grace of God that was poured out for you. The first question is, do you receive it? Or are you too proud to receive it? Do you believe it? You might have to give up a lot of things that you grew up with, even in the church. The second thing is, will you respond to it? We're going to give you an opportunity to respond today in song, in prayer, before we depart. But friends, don't make next week just another typical week. Take the opportunity to gaze on the beauty of Christ and to respond with your talents and your resources your wealth. Let's pray.